Once again, it's time for our partnership, WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune Editorial Board. Chad Hartman here from WCCO. DJ Tice and John Rash from the Star Tribune. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Good to see you too. Thank uh, you. Uh, John, we'll start with you. I mean, it seems like uh, so many times we've talked about President Trump uh, versus Ilhan Omar turning into sports. And here we have it again where the president retweets uh, early this morning uh, from an individual alleging that this is a video showing Congresswoman Omar on the evening of September 11th dancing. By the way, a great song but from, from Lizzo as an aside, but uh, dancing and celebrating on September 11th, which uh, turns out to be 100% not true. It's two days later. It's an event for the Congressional Black Caucus. The president puts it out there to 64 million people. It is a lie. It is clearly a lie. The president often, John, and you chime in afterwards, DJ will say, well, retweets are different. You know, retweets are different. No, they're not. He's putting this out. I would also add, by the way, that no one was dancing and celebrating September 11th, 2001. But the idea that there weren't people on September 11th, 2019, who were having friends over or a happy hour having fun is preposterous. But this was put out to again suggest that she doesn't like America. She's celebrating September 11th. And it's just and she has responded saying, you're putting my life at risk. What's what's your view of, of this latest battle? That at the same time, President Trump and the administration and its allies in the Mideast are trying to convince the world about what they think transpired in Saudi Arabia and that veracity is imperative that they can build an international coalition to respond to whatever happened, and if indeed Iran was behind that, that if he and the administration are saying that, well, retweets are different and we don't always have to be completely accurate, it completely undermines his credibility as have Mm -hmm. so many of the things that he has said and done. And you would think that they would be particularly careful with an issue like this at this time. But that's not the way that President Trump has operated uh, since before he came into office, let alone since he's become president of the United States. It is a smear. It is wrong. And the president of the United States should be above that. No matter what anyone thinks of Representative Omar or her politics, the characterization of what she was doing was wrong. The timing was wrong. And to spread the falsehood is wrong. And, Doug, before you chime in, I'll just say all three of us, either individually or the Star Tribune editorial board at times, has called out Representative Omar for some of her comments. This conversation today is not saying we back 100 percent where she stands on policy. For me, it's on what is actually factual and accurate about what the president put out today. Absolutely. She is, uh, has been irresponsible herself in, in uh, several occasions. She's often her own worst enemy, but this mm-hmm. is not one of those occasions. Yep. Uh, this is a classic Trump moment of recklessness and, uh, you know, an, an obsession with division and sowing division, uh, and really, uh, careless about the, uh, the potential consequences. So there's probably a little hyperbole in her. Uh, uh, fears yep. about her life. Let's hope so. Yep. Uh, but it, it is of concern that in this, this hyper polarized and uh, overheated atmosphere, we don't need, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of relentless, obsessive, uh, effort to, uh, sow division and, uh, and, and stir up rancor. Uh, you know, the Trump clearly is obsessed with Omar yep. and it's partly strategic. You know, mm-hmm. he sees labeling, 
or, or making her the face of the, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, to his advantage. But, uh, you know, he needs to be uh, careful that he doesn't uh, <laughs> end up going so far that uh, he actually turns it back against himself. You know, I'll quickly add that the network that President Trump has said that he watches the most and that is most closely associated, the Fox uh, News Network, had a report about the videos of violent behavior in downtown Minneapolis that I know you've certainly been talking about in yeah. the air and the whole Twin Cities have been talking about. But the Fox News reporter began by talking about them just yesterday by saying in Elon Omar's district in Minneapolis, and yeah. then they went on to the story, they were factually accurate that this transpired in downtown. It's part of the 5th District in of Minneapolis. It has absolutely nothing to do with None. Representative None. Omar, but it's in <clears> the same way that Fox News as well as the Republican Party, often want to put her front and center as the face of the Democratic Party, as D.J. accurately says, and even more so than most members of the so-called squad, which include Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So this is not going to be the last we hear about regarding President Trump and Representative Omar. I'm glad you brought that up because I I was told uh, by a couple of people in the last 24 hours that the Fox reporters and the producer came to town, D.J., they approach Mayor Fry and they say, we're coming to town. We're going to do a story on what's taking place. And Jacob said, I'm not talking to you. I think that's wrong. I think, um, listen, at night, when it's Sean Hannity, when it's Tucker Carlson, when it's Laura Ingram, you know what you have. Right. Um, I would also agree with, with uh, John in this case. Uh, I don't think it's it's even close to the narrative that this is Ilhan Omar's district. Within, you're then going to the violent side. Sure. But there are also many good Fox reporters. And when you're the mayor of the biggest city and when this is a story and when a prominent network comes to town, personally, I think he's making a mistake when he doesn't sit down with him. I think I think comes with the territory. Well, I think you're right. Uh, this story is obviously extremely sensitive, extremely difficult uh, to be dealt with. But it's also a branding disaster for the city of Minneapolis. Yes. <laughs> far and wide. Uh, and as as mayor of the city, as the you know, the chief face of the city, exactly. if you will, uh, you know, he needs to address it uh, and reassure both citizens here uh, and any potential visitor to the city of Minneapolis that that city leadership is concerned about this, is focused on it, is, uh, you know, working on, on, on ensuring safety on our streets. So let's circle back to another point that you made, John, which is so important. I mean, we, we don't know where our country is headed regarding what took place with the attack in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia coming out again early today, it's clear-cut, it's Iran. The Secretary of State has said repeatedly, clear-cut, it's Iran. The president is a little bit of both, although he's now offered up today through Twitter, uh, saying the Secretary of Mnuchin needs to offer up even stronger uh, a punishment. Do we have the relationship right now with enough countries to build some sort of coalition that has happened so many other times in our history to further sanction Iran, not just what we're doing ourselves. And will those countries believe in the president himself? Well, I think where you ended is where they should have begun, which is to get people to believe what transpired. And if indeed Iran is behind this in terms of manufacturing the weapons, as well as if they happen to have been fired from Iranian soil, that is something that experts should be able to prove. And so what most administrations would do in the George W. Bush administration, Barack Obama administration, 
would be to get an international panel of experts to be able to quickly examine this, be extraordinarily transparent about the process and share the results with the world, and then say, yes, this was an attack on Saudi Arabia and maybe by extension its ally, the United States, but it's also an attack on the global oil supply at a time when it's a very precarious time for the global economy. And so this is an attack on all of us, and we all have to respond. It doesn't have to be a kinetic response in terms of military action. It can be an economic one. It can strengthen existing sanctions or perhaps put new ones on, or maybe even augment the argument the administration has had that they need global help to patrol the Persian Gulf from that perspective. But because they immediately jumped out there, Secretary of State saying that it is Iran, President Trump suggesting that the United States is quote-unquote locked and loaded, and then seemingly deferring to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. We're waiting for their report. Exactly, before he even uh, consults with Congress, let alone allies in the Gulf, in Europe, even Russia and China, who are more in an adversarial than an allied relationship at this point, was the wrong way to do it. They're scrambling back now to try to go about the processes. Perhaps it would have worked better, but we'll have to see what the results are. I agree with all that. Uh, I, th- I think a concerning aspect of this is to recall that, of course, Saudi Arabia has a considerable military uh, force at its own disposal, including mm-hmm. a lot of American hardware. Yeah. Uh, and the enmity between these two countries is, goes very deep, uh, deeper yes. than it's probably easy for us to understand because right. of the religious uh, element in it. It's not simply a conflict of interests. Uh, that we're dealing with here. And we probably don't want, the last thing we would want is, you know, some kind of free-for-all uh, breaking out across uh, the Middle East, and that's not impossible to imagine here. So they, it is important, I think, that the Saudis are reassured, if if that's the word, uh, you know, that, that we're engaged uh, on this and that they don't have to go it alone and, you know, stand back we and our and our allies, uh, and it would help if we had better relations with our allies this day, these days. But you know that that we will deal with Iran in whatever way it turns out to to be appropriate. Uh, you know, lest we get uh, a general war in the Middle East that's out of our control. The Israeli elections. This is what John part two. Um, it's still up in the air, right? I mean, are we headed for part three? It's it's so different how elections work. In Israel, as opposed to just one person wins, it's not just one individual. It's, it's putting together a coalition. Just Indeed. explain what's going on right now. Well, the third time would not be the charm for the Israeli electorate, who were not happy about having to go back to the polls. I spoke with the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Daniel Kurtzer, this afternoon. He thinks that the likely outcome will be a grand coalition between Likud, which is Prime Minister Netanyahu's right center party and the Blue-White Coalition, this new upstart party, which is a little bit more center-left, much more center than they are left. The left has been left behind in Israeli politics. But if that were to come to bear, Benny Gans, who is the head of the Blue-White Coalition, has said repeatedly he would not enter into a unity government if Prime Minister Netanyahu led it. And so it's likely that if that happened, he would be pushed aside. If he's pushed aside... He may face an indictment on multiple charges, including bribery and corruption. So, mm-hmm. you know, we may have a spectacular legal case that may transpire in Israel as well. Now, so far, this hasn't necessarily affected 
their alliances or their economy, but it's an extraordinarily turbulent time. And what it could affect is whatever prospect for peace between the Palestinians and Israelis, however remote that possibility seems at at this moment, both internally within the country as well as the long-awaited, much-delayed peace plan from the administration that they said they would unveil after the results of the election. Well, if the election continues to be uncertain and they have three weeks with one renewal, so it might be another six weeks in the wilderness politically before they're able to figure anything out at this point, it's just going to keep pushing this back. And that also affects bilateral relations yeah. with the United States. Before you jump in, DJ, let me just yeah. stay with this. Um, are people writing off, John, Bibi Netanyahu too soon? I mean, this is a man who has lasted decade after decade after decade, you know, and it's, well, he's done. No, he's not done. You know, I mean, you're right. He, he's right now he's behind. He could end up in jail because of this. if he wins, he could he could wipe these charges away. In particular, I, mean, I would not count him out because many observers have have said that if he's able to stay in office, part of what he may do is be able to get some parties who would wave away or key, or give him immunity from prosecution in exchange for what he had promised before the election which was to annex portions of, of the West Bank, which yep. you know would um, completely end any prospects of the two-state solution at this point. So certainly he's the uh, a very wily politician. He's the longest-serving prime minister of Israel. So I, and I don't think anyone else, should count him out at this point. But he certainly is weakened because of this election and not strengthened. You know, I was going to say uh, that uh, we often talk somewhat in exaggerated terms about the uh, uh, the new the, whatever the election is that's upcoming being the most important one in right. uh, history. And Everyone is. Uh, but for Israel, this election is pretty important because of the issues that John raises at Netanyahu in somewhat, I think, a, a, a desperate attempt to firm up his, his right-wing uh, coalition, uh, you know, vowed to these annexations and the, the greater Israel expansion, which which would kind of formally end the peace process, you know, such as it is, uh, and and you know, really change the course of of Israeli history in a in a troublesome way. But the other thing I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned is just the difference in the election electoral systems. We don't have that many opportunities to feel good about the American system these days. <laughs> But we don't have these situations yeah. where even after all the votes are counted, they still can't form a government. Yeah. And uh, they can go on for, in, in some cases, years uh, without a firm government. And this has happened, uh, you know, in, in Germany, in Belgium, and something very much like it is, is happening in Britain right now. Yeah. That's true. Uh, you know, so there are some advantages, even with our <laughs> hanging chads yeah. and electoral college yeah. woes that, uh, you know, to our more decisive Results. All right. Speaking of elections, uh, the Democrats are still vying to challenge uh, Donald Trump. Since we all last chatted, we had another debate. And, it, you know, it's been, what, four or five months where the person who's emerged most is Elizabeth Warren. And during the debate, Joe Biden was trying to bring up the cost of what Medicare for all uh, will, will, will cost the American citizens. And it seemed like it was more engaged with Bernie Sanders. But Elizabeth Warren continues to face this question, including last night, Stephen Colbert. And Colbert's like, okay, you believe in this, but can you definitively say, will the middle class, will they have to pay more? And he tried to push, and she gives a long, 
thoughtful answer, which she believes in about the wealth they're going to pay more and nobody likes. But, John, she won't answer what is an obvious question, and it seems like it's the truth that you can say you're going to pay, like Bernie will say, well, yes, there will be a tax, but you're going to pay less in other areas. Elizabeth Warren won't even answer that, and she's going to be asked that over and over and over again. And these questions are coming from relatively friendly questioners in terms of Stephen Colbert, Vice President Biden, other Democrats on the stage, many who have said that they, in principle, agree with the Medicare for All plan. If she indeed is the nominee, you can well imagine that President Trump is going to beat this like a drum throughout the entire campaign and keep asking this and keep asking the American people if they're ready to pay for more. I thought kind of lost in the news cycle, but certainly significant you know, was Senator Peters from Michigan, who doesn't get a lot of press. They talked to him about uh, the candidate, the Democrats winning Michigan, which will be key to the 2020 election. He thought they had a good shot, but he was quick to say the one issue that he thinks could keep that from happening are auto workers who have what are considered, use an auto term here, the Cadillac, you know, of, of health plans. This has been brought up in mm-hmm. debates as well. Yep. And they're not going to want their health care plan taken away by Medicare for all. That was one of Biden's points last week. Yes, absolutely. And I think pretty clearly Warren has made a strategic decision not to answer this question and to give, you know, gobbledygook and, uh, you know, once around the park uh, kinds of answers. And I I fear, you know, she's not going to go to the Walter Mondale, I'll raise taxes, and so will he kind of answer. But I fear it's kind of a sign of the post-Trump politics Yeah, where he has taught everybody that, you know, you can just spout nonsense all day long and it's – not going to it's not going to prevent you from getting a 50% plus 1 vote yeah. which is all all you have to do because those those folks are already with you so it's you know it it can't just be that she hasn't decided yet how she's going to handle this because as you say she knows oh, she knows it. she knows she's going to get this question from now until election day uh about 20 seconds each you first Doug. did uh did Klobuchar help herself in any significant way last week well i see she's up a point in the polls and i guess that's pretty significant yeah. when you're starting at one yeah uh, you know i thought she had a good night i, I was impressed with uh, her uh, clear clarity in branding herself as a moderate and not afraid to uh, uh, to say that i also happen to think she's right about what the country needs uh somebody who wants to be president for the whole country yeah and not half the country and you know so i i welcome uh, that, that effort on her part. And I thought she did a good job. Whether or how far it's going to get her, I don't know. Yes, she helped herself, but not enough to upend the race or change the overall narrative. She may have helped herself a little bit more in Iowa relative to some other states, but she's still going to need major movement and a major moment to be able to break through and get among the top three as these uh, primaries and caucuses come quite quickly after the first of the year. Gents, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we love the partnership, and we appreciate the flexibility today, too. Uh, Plain Politics, Star Tribune, and WCCO working together.